the impacts of climate change are not being caused by us, who live in the Arctic, but from the outside. To protect the Arctic is to protect the rest of the world. That's Lisa Hopper-Kolek, Vice President of the Inuit Circumpolar Council, and our guest on this episode of Explore, a Canadian Geographic podcast. Welcome to Explore. I'm your host, David McGuffin. Before we get to our guest, I want to make a big announcement. The RCGS Polar Plunge fundraiser is officially kicking off. We're really excited that some of Canada's most notable leaders and adventurers have agreed, God love them, to join together for our first ever RCGS Polar Plunge. Our goal is to raise $10,000. And by donating today, you will help Canadian Geographic and this podcast inspire the next generation of explorers out there and share stories that build understanding and help us all to respond to the most pressing challenges facing us today. Donate, and you will also get to see a bunch of otherwise notable, sensible people jump into a frozen Canadian lake in early March. That's got to be worth it. The Polar Plungers include me, along with our new RCGS Honorary President, Perry Belgard, Honorary RCGS Fellow, Catherine McKenna, Canadian Geographic's new Editor-in-Chief, Alex Pope, RCGS Influencer, Andrew Lovesey, and more. The whole thing will be videotaped, screams and all, but we need your donations to make the plunge happen. We need to hit fundraising goals to get our notable guests to go into that freezing cold water. You can donate at rcgs.org forward slash polar plunge. That's the RCGS website. And if you sign up to become a monthly donor, we'll even send you a Canadian Geographic toque, which I can tell you is both cozy and good looking. Follow at CanGeo on social media for lots of fun videos and information leading up to the big event over the next two weeks. That website again to donate is rcgs.org forward slash polar plunge. And thank you for supporting independent media in Canada. Now, today on the podcast, our journey takes us to Nunavik, the traditional Inuit lands in northern Quebec running between Hudson's Bay and Labrador. It was there that our guest, Lisa Hopper-Kulik, was born in a small Inuit village on the eastern shore of Hudson's Bay. Her childhood was fascinating, steeped in Inuit culture. She was raised by a grandfather who was one of the first celebrated Inuit artists and stone carvers. His works were sold all over North America. Inspired by her grandfather, Lisa Hopper-Kulik has gone on to her own impressive career dedicated to preserving and rebuilding Inuit culture and communities and language which we discuss at length. But we started off with her role as Vice President of the Inuit Circumpolar Council and the very active fight she is leading from there against climate change, which is hitting the Arctic regions faster and harder than anywhere else on the planet. The Inuit Circumpolar Council, Canada, Greenland, Alaska, Chukotka, you know, mm -hmm. it, it brings the Inuit voice of the Circumpolar region together. We want to be sure to to be included in decision-making processes, to be sure that the Inuit voice is heard internationally, relating to our environment, you know, our land, our waters, health, for example, mm -hmm. youth, education, language. The the Inuit Circumpolar Council is is doing a lot of work and. Uh, I've been working on climate change issues, uh, going to the Conference of the Parties uh, a couple of times now, 
the, the big UN and climate change conferences. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, the first COP I went to was in Madrid in, in uh, uh, two years ago. Mm-hmm. And the last one we went to was in Glasgow, uh, Scotland. And that was where, you know, I saw that when we work together and go as a group and be a unified voice, that we can mm-hmm. really get as much as the world that we can to listen to us. Right. Uh, to hear our concerns on climate change and how it's right. impacting our homeland, our people, our society. Uh, and we should say that it's it's the, the, the climate change that's happening in the Arctic is happening exponentially faster than anyone Yes. Else. Yeah. So because of our presence, more and more people from the outside are learning about this. The impacts of climate change are not being caused by us who live in the Arctic, but from the outside, it's for our well-being that we are voicing as much as we can and raising awareness about the, the impacts of climate change in our homeland. The impacts are very visible. Inuit are experiencing them. It's not through their own causes that climate change is happening much greater in in the Arctic than elsewhere. So to protect the Arctic is to protect the rest of the world as well. Climate change is happening everywhere. And I saw it personally uh, when I went to visit family and and do a project in Puvonito in October last, just last year, 2021. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, there was not an inch of snow on the ground. Uh, uh, Normally at at that time of year, we can see, you know, it's snowing. The snow is starting to become deeper. The blizzards would normally start and no ice. No ice along the edge of the the shores. And I was telling that to people. I was telling, look, hey, you have no snow. You have no, there's nothing here. Oh, that's right. right. This is really uh, our life yeah. now, you know. In which has huge implications for hunting, for all sorts. That's of things, right. It? You know, we'd have to adapt and and change and and watch mm-hmm. and wait longer for being able to travel on the ice. Some of the regulars that go out on the land uh, were still going on their canoes in October. Right. Yeah, which is. You know, by November, people are speeding across the ice uh, out on, yeah. in the early mornings, going out on their hunting expeditions. Uh, but not this year. They had to wait quite a long time. Yeah. And, you know, they have to listen to the warnings from the elders who, who see that, who are observing this. And younger people, they might take uh, greater risks when they, when they go out. So, you know, they have to receive those warnings and... Mm-hmm. Be careful, don't go out now. Mm-hmm. If you do, go only that way and, and so mm-hmm. on. What gives you hope in terms of turning the climate around? What gives me hope is that more and more people are listening. And I think it's, it's happening more and more. People are uh, feeling more and more responsible 
as individuals, as families, and and mm -hmm. look at how they can improve their lifestyle so it, it doesn't damage the environment, it doesn't require so much energy to, to uh, I mean, carbon-dependent energy to do things that we are so used to doing today. There's hope in that we can have more dialogue, we can uh, continue to influence and ally together and make coalitions together. Uh, this is what I'm, I'm wanting to see in the near future, is us working not only just with our fellow Inuit, but with fellow Canadians, fellow mm -hmm. citizens, in raising awareness and taking action on preventing climate change. In your work on climate change, you also work with the International Maritime Organization. What does that involve? This organization, it uh, makes sure that ships around the world follow regulations. That's also where the polar code is created. Which is becoming a much bigger issue, isn't it? Because the Arctic is opening up for shipping. There's cruise lines now going through there, let alone big tanker ships. That's right. Over the years, it's become more and more of a concern, an issue, because the early breakup of ice and, and the late ice freezing is bringing more and more ships. You know, shipping has increased in the mm -hmm. Arctic. Um, as mines uh, start running in the Arctic, they bring ships with them as well. Mm -hmm. So more mines will be more will mean more ships. The growing communities also means more ships bringing in supplies, mm -hmm. but also uh, fuel for the generators. And then there's tourism as well that's bringing more and more ships. Um, so that also means we need safe corridors for ships so that also they don't risk running into each other mm -hmm. and also most importantly they don't disturb marine wildlife and know? how regulated are you seeing that right now and what more needs to be done if, if well anything? in the example of underwater noise so yeah. there are because um, ships create noise uh, in the water yeah. animals become disturbed by that and the presence of ships too become dangerous to mm. animals. And then there's the risk of the spills of fuels. I mean, mm. uh, those things have already happened in the Arctic. There is right now at the IMO work that is going on to review the guidelines for reducing uh, underwater radiated noise. There's newer technology that can be taken advantage of. Um, there's also, you know, slowing down in particular certain areas that can be done. Um, and the guidelines are just that. They are guidelines. And there had been difficulty in implementing them or for ship owners to actually, mm -hmm. you know, act on them because they're not forced to. It's not a law. But there seem to have been some some difficulty really applying those guidelines which are mm. from 2014 so now they're being reviewed because of those difficulties and mm -hmm. um, because we've become consultative status members of the international maritime organization we're able to bring our voice to these discussions and mm -hmm. add to, uh, this this inuit voice 
uh, and concerns and, and our knowledge of our area uh, to to be taken into account during these review of guidelines. What would help? I mean, would like more of a Canadian Coast Guard presence up there help? I mean, what do you see as part of the solution to this? Part of the solution is ship owners that, that have ships mm-hmm. going through the Arctic waters mm-hmm. to really be acutely aware of the importance mm-hmm. of the waters for us. Yeah. Yes, of, of that connection to our culture. It's the first thing I think that, that needs to be understood, but also that our knowledge is part of the research mm-hmm. that is undertaken to see how to reduce underwater radiated noise. Because from what I understand, um, there are things that need to be balanced out. For example, energy efficiency and underwater noise necessarily are linked. To reduce underwater noise, energy efficiency is sometimes compromised. Um, Mm -hmm. Making energy something energy efficient also compromises underwater noise. So there's different uh, things being researched on how this can be improved. Yes, but there's also other things like reducing speed can reduce underwater noise. So those are just, you know, two things that I mentioned, but there's many, many other things related to underwater noise that are being studied, improving on the guidelines, taking those into account. So there's many other issues being worked on at the IMO. There was the uh, ban on the use of heavy fuel oil. And the danger in that is that if there's a spill, that's more damaging? Or exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah. Heavy fuel oil is, is, is that. It's, it's heavy. It's, it's uh, thick. Mm. It's difficult to clean up, combined with uh, lack of infrastructure and uh, no preparedness for mm. cleanups in the communities, in case it happens near the communities. Mm -hmm. No one is prepared for cleaning up in the Arctic a spill of heavy fuel oil. And this type of spill has already occurred in the Alaska area and created a lot of damage. So it wouldn't be good at all if it should ever happen. At the Royal Canadian Geographical Society, we're kicking off a series of events uh, tied to the UN Decade of Indigenous Language. And you're fluent in Inuktitut, your language of, of, of your Inuit culture. And I'm just wondering if you can explain to me the importance of being grounded in that language and its connection for you to your culture and to your land. Yes, I'll be happy to. I grew up mm-hmm. with uh, my grandparents. I was raised by them. So mm-hmm. we fully spoke Inuktitut at home only. Mm-hmm. And so our daily life was permeated in everything Inuit, you know, even though we were living in in a wooden home and uh, also going shopping for different foods than mm-hmm. what my grandparents were used to when they were little right. because they grew up in, in tents and in igloos and lived the semi-nomadic life uh, in their time. And when I was growing up, everything was in Inuktitut at home. And then the outside world was in English. So we went to school and primary school was all about learning English and the stories that came from the, the, this English part of our lives. But at home, mm-hmm. everything was in Inuktitut. Outside activities, eating, 
sewing little uh, duffel socks when I was little, mm-hmm. um, mittens, watching my grandmother cooking or sewing, and everything was in Inuktitut. And Inuktitut means in the Inuit way. Mm-hmm. So it can also mean your language, or it can also mean doing things the Inuit way, in Inuktitut. You're quite lucky in that you raised by grandparents who the language for them was part of their semi-nomadic life, like the traditional lifestyle. So you, you're raised in a language that's still very steeped in the land that was around them as it was and how they lived on it. That's right. Yes. Which is, it's more of a challenge now, I would suspect. It really is because even hunting skills um, have changed. Like, for example, Inuit uh, used to go uh, imitating a seal while out on the ice using a blind so that the seal wouldn't see you and going as mm. close as possible you could. And that's a, a, a very specific term, Aunir in Inuktitut. Mm. So that's a term that's fallen out of usage, even though mm. uh, now uh, a little bit more and more Inuit are hearing about it because that's, you know, they're curious about how Inuit used to hunt and, and so mm-hmm. on. But the terms around seal hunting, around the breathing seal hole, has all specific terms in it that are being used less and less. But due to this change in lifestyle, um, these are things that change in our language. And then there are new terms that we need to create as well. The term for a computer didn't exist, but now it does. And for us, it is haritaoyak. Haritaq means brain. And when you add the adjective daoyak, that means resembling. So then it means a computer resembles a, a brain <laughs> in the mm. way it functions. <laughs> yeah. So there are many, many terms. Um, uh, many things that we haven't created terms for yet. So it's the work of translators, uh, Inuktitut translators, to do that kind of thing. So what we'd find in Nunavik often were terminology workshops that were organized by Mm. Avatar Cultural Institute. And I participated in these uh, a couple of times because my earlier career was um, in, in translating documents for people into mm. Inuktitut, yes. Mm. And when I was younger, you know, as I went on to continue my studies in Montreal, I also uh, would translate for patients arriving in Montreal. And right. they, they often they were older patients. And um, without the translation, uh, you know, the communication between doctor and patient, mm-hmm. Uh, one would not get very far in treating the patient and the patient wouldn't be able to communicate their illness. So I often did that during the summer times as a summer job. Mm -hmm. And I enjoyed that very much. So the connection with my language is very important for me still. How would you describe the state of Inuktitut today? I mean, it sounds like when you were growing up, probably you and most of your friends were speaking it at home. I'm just wondering where that stands today. Yes, it has changed over the decades. I've often visited the communities and, and participated in, in public consultations regarding projects happening in Nunavik and 
You know, there was one occasion where I realized that in certain areas, Inuit even regard Inuktitude um, as less important than being able to speak English because mm-hmm. for their children, they want to be able to have them obtain jobs. Uh, mm-hmm. We do have to be able to speak English or French um, if we want good jobs, mm-hmm. e- even in, in our communities. We want to encourage our youth to be able to develop their careers and so on. And I realized that that was super important to to some people, but to the detriment of Inuktitut. So mm-hmm. um, I think that is somehow what has occurred. We teach Inuktitut in the school system, but there's challenges in keeping the rigorous aspect of teaching. There's there's some teacher training, but I think there's a necessity to continue to to follow up with the teacher training and and, and uh, to follow teachers closely when they teach Inuktitut, mm-hmm. you know. A lot of the teachers going to the communities come from outside Inuit Nunangat. So there are some challenges. There's the youth speaking Inuktitut today. Not all of them, I have to say. I, you know, right. I, I must qualify that. But it's much more noticeable that the youth, when they're speaking, they're making grammatical errors. Mm-hmm. And even though they may be taught that, well, this is the reason why we need to say it this way, it takes a very long time to change a habit. And there are now habits mm-hmm. that are now very, very difficult to change. Mm-hmm. So um, just an example is the ra sound that has become uh, mixed with the ra sound. Mm-hmm. And so we're hearing more of that Ra sound in the spoken speech of many youth. What are the dangers of this, of this sort of gradual loss of language? Well, the unique aspect of our grammar, the, the Inuktitut, uh, the special uh, aspect of our language, it's being unique, uh, is changing uh, because I think the influence of uh, these, you know, also wonderful tools that we get to to use like Facebook because Facebook connects me with my family. I get to see the news of my nieces and and Mm. grandchildren and so on. But at the same time, there's a lot of videos, movies uh, that are only in English. So a lot of our youth are really exposed to the English. And so sometimes when they speak in Uktitut, they're actually speaking English. The structure of our language is such that it's so different from English, we can tell when the youth are speaking Inuktitut, they, they, they are speaking Inuktitut, yes, they're making mm. the sounds, but the structure that they are speaking, it is like they're translating literally from English to Inuktitut mm. in, in their speech. The linguistic structure is being forgotten. You, you mentioned you were raised by your, your grandparents and uh, Asa and Lydia. Yes, that right? Yeah. Yeah. that's and, right. And, and your grandfather's quite a famous figure in a lot of ways, a very famous Inuit carver and artist, uh, and then went on to be an Anglican minister. And I'm just, what are your memories growing up with your grandparents? 
uh, one of the fond memories I have of my grandfather is always uh, him calling me Anana. Anana mm. means mother. Mm. Anana ngay, every time I entered home, Anana ngay, hi mom. Um, and um, uh, I was proud that he called me mom because I was named after his mom, Khilukhi. So this is oh, my okay. middle name. It's just one of my best memories because I was close. I felt close to my grandfather mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because of that, and I felt uh, like he he loved me unconditionally and, and made me feel special because I was named after his own mom. You know, it's in our naming system that we name our children after our ancestors, and so right. it was this custom that I was named. What I loved about my grandfather too was that he traveled yeah. all uh, across Inuit, Nunangat in Nunavik, and I enjoyed going with him. So uh, we were living in Kangirsuk in the Angava Bay, and he said, uh, Oh, I have to go to Huaktak because he was the Anglican minister and, and he had mm-hmm. to go and, and do the things that uh, an Anglican mm-hmm. minister does. And so one day he wanted to go to Huaktak and he asked my brother to go with him. My brother said, No, I don't want to go. And mm-hmm. I said, I do, I do. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the trip was done by snowmobile and I was, I don't know, 11 perhaps. So I had a wonderful adventure with him. I, it felt like an adventure and I was behind on the sled while he and my uncle rode on the snowmobile and I was just watching them and, and trailing along, uh, feeling quite happy, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> following him. Um, so this, this adventurous side of him was very much uh, present because he would go, uh, we would go back home for holidays. And one day he took the snowmobile from Angava Bay, Kangersuk, uh, all the way to Povernitok, to the Hudson Bay, crossing the Nunavik Peninsula um, wow. by snowmobile in the winter. And uh, he did that with, with my Ukuak, my grandmother. Um, mm-hmm. Ukuak means uh, daughter-in-law, uh, mm-hmm. since he yes, was my I... son. <laughs> uh, they were both my grandparents, but, um, right. I, I, um, you know, because I was Khilukhi, the mother yeah. of Khub Aisa, you know, mm-hmm. he was my son and, and she was my grand, uh, my, my daughter-in-law. daughter-in-law. <laughs> uh-huh. Anyway, my Ukwar had made the, uh, uh, a one piece winter suit for my little sister, who was perhaps three, three mm-hmm. years old at the time or four. Mm-hmm. And she went along with them. And I, you know, I thought they were so lucky to do that. Um, but they couldn't bring me and my brother, so we had to go by airplane. But I, when I think about it, that is amazing to do this type of uh, um, okay. trip across the Nunavik Peninsula to go yeah. on holiday and yeah, visit that's... family. And, and Inuit have been doing this yeah. since time immemorial, you know. So it was one of those uh, yeah. Yeah, adventures. We're... By the time you're a young child living with with Asa and Lydia, I mean he's an Anglican minister, but he had this whole previous life as a quite a famous artist, yes. an Inuit carver and artist. And I'm just wondering how much you were aware of that growing up. And 
Well, although I didn't end up, you know, being able to watch him carving, I had already, you know, seen some exposure to his carvings because he would receive these books, catalogs or books published that were collections Mm -hmm. of Inuit art and Mm -hmm. his sculptures would be part of these books. So Mm -hmm. we would see them when he received them. Mm-hmm. And one day also, and I always remember this, I had gone to Ontario to continue my studies for grade 7, grade 8 as a young, young teenager. And I lived with this family who took good care of me. And the first year I went, I was there in the fall and I went home for Christmas. And my grandfather just you know the day before i left he gave me this tiny little jewelry box mm-hmm. and in it were two beautiful ivory rings that he made for my i called her aunt phyllis but she was the mother mm-hmm. of the family taking care of me oh, beautiful yeah he made those as a gift for her these must have been the last rings that he ever made mm-hmm. in in ivory and nowadays you know, I realized, oh, that's phenomenal. He had a wonderful ability. He had technical ability. I've seen photos of his artwork. I've seen them Mm. also with my own eyes, Mm -hmm. how he sculpted these curved igloos, um, uh, snow snow blocks curved uh, to protect a seal hunter. And this at a time when tools were not so, you know, modern, Mm -hmm. they were almost rudimentary. And so he was a wonderful carver. And now I'm going, um, I'm not doing it on a daily basis, but as much as possible, I want to find his carvings and have a Mm -hmm. photographic collection of his carvings. You wear many hats, Lisa, I should say, and you have many different uh, jobs. One of them is, is a curator at the Mu- Montreal Museum of Fine Arts, yes, right? Yes. And are not his, some of his pieces are there, I believe, too. Well, it, actually, the very first acquisitions that that museum, the, the Montreal Museum of Fine Arts, had made was back in 1953 or, or very early on the carving uh, era where you know, it really began to sell their art. He's one of the first artists in which his artwork was bought by the museum. Nice. And it's a walrus. That's actually the only carving he had he had made that's at the museum. So it's really okay. nice to see. It was uh, it was really nice for me to to be hired by the museum and say, mm-hmm. "Oh, one of his carvings is one of their very first yeah. acquisitions that the museum had made." So I'm just wondering if there's any words of advice you received from your grandfather or your grandmother that you sort of turn to now in in sort of these more troubled times? I do always think back to the advice um, that my grandfather gave me. He said, assist others, those in need. And, And that's it's typically Inuit for our parents to be telling us things like that. Mm-hmm. You know, not just think of ourselves. And I think that's why he he became an Anglican minister himself and, and did his best to guide his fellow Inuit. 
And he did it in a very respectful way, in a wise way. He's my role model, my first role model. It wasn't just his words and his advice, but he, he really, he truly lived as an example. So I think that's what I turn to. If, if I'm going through any difficult times, he, he's first and foremost on my mind. How would he, how would he act? What would he tell me? He also told me, Kayusigit. Kayusigit, well, he could see that I was making an effort. Uh, you know, I really wanted to move forward and, and do mm-hmm. exciting things and uh, have an adventure here and there. And mm-hmm. yeah, you know, he would, he would always say, Kayusigit, continue, continue. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Continue your, your efforts. Yes. Keep moving forward. Yeah, there's a lot to be said for that. And assist others, too. I think a lot of us get very overwhelmed by the sort of the state of the world. But I think even if you can help three or four people around you, you know, yeah. even those little steps make a huge difference and, make, and will help you probably as well. That's right. When we have it in our intention to, to assist others, you know, it, it, it makes us feel good and yeah. also have a sense of helpfulness, accomplishment. That brings peace also, yeah. Yeah, yeah. My last question, it's one I ask every guest I have on the podcast. Is there a place, you, is there a favorite place you have in Nunavik or in Canada that maybe it's a place you go to in your mind when you need to find a happy place or a place you just love to visit makes you feel calm? Can you describe that place? When I think of my favorite place, last summer I had the opportunity Somehow, my brother, he could see that I really wanted to go out on the land and, and, and uh, he said, I'll take you for a canoe ride and we'll go to Sungaoyangnak. He brought us by canoe with my sister mm. and my other brother, who I, who I grew up with, with my grandparents. And Sungaoyangnak, you know, I had, I had completely forgotten about Sungaoyangnak. That's an island mm-hmm. south of Pouvelnito. Mm-hmm. So this and is on Hudson's Bay? Yeah, the, my brother who was adopted as well, he was like um, uh, nine months, 10 months older than me. So he said, do you remember we went there? We used to go there, family camping. Nice. And I, I had completely forgotten about this over the years. I got too busy. I've been traveling to different parts of the world. I'm working. I've, I put so much stress on myself in, in trying to achieve things, going to school and blah, 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 and having a family too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and finally, we went to Sungawayangna, spent uh, several hours and took out our fishing rods. And I'm like, oh, yes. This was our family camp. I've returned to my my home, and it was Pouvelnito has been windy all summer. It was uh, rainy, windy all the time. The temperature was not good at all. But in those few hours, sunny, bright. I took photos. I took a selfie. And while mm-hmm. I took a selfie and looked at it afterwards, I saw that there was a mosquito coming after me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I thought, oh my God, I'm home now. I want to come here every year now from now on. And so because it connects me with, with my family, my homeland, my, 
my childhood, the fun times, and, and I get to spend a bit of time here with my sister and my brother, where we actually grew up together. And yeah, yeah. so right now, this is really my favorite place. And I'm hoping to go back there next summer and spend time actually yeah. sleeping overnight with a tent and uh, at the right time for fishing because when we went there it was uh i can't remember now august september september and the fish weren't biting anymore we could see uh, them we saw hundreds of the char right. along the shore but they weren't biting they weren't hungry but it's one of my my favorite places it's to be out on the land on the tundra walking berry picking with friends it reminds me of those times we went with my aunts and having tea with a fire so the taste of the tea is smoked and it's just mm. one of you know fun fun times yeah so that's where i'm going to go back next summer beautiful well thank you what a beautiful memory and, and thank you for yes. sharing that, that, that special place with us <laughs> you're welcome so Lisa Hopekola, thank you so much for coming on the Explore podcast. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, David. It's been a pleasure. That's it for this episode of Explore. Thank you so much for listening. And a quick reminder to donate to the RCGS Polar Plunge to support Canadian Geographic and this podcast. And as a bonus, you can make a bunch of otherwise sensible, notable Canadians jump into a frozen Canadian lake. To donate, go to rcgs.org forward slash polar plunge. Until next time, when we'll explore again, I'm David McGuffin. I think right now we're enjoying very much looking back at the Earth, and it's just been a fantastic experience, and I just can't wait to get back and start telling people. We left Simpson about June 10th with the Fur Brigade, consisting of a number of York boats, each manned by 10 voyageurs. For us, it means, it means that in the oral history is very strong. And we flew all over every inch of the country that could be. We were hoping that he would fire at us. Well, I'm the first for Canada.